Welcome to Rants About Humanity, a podcast where we interview guest experts with passionate opinions about important topics that don't get enough attention. Raw, unfiltered, thought-provoking perspectives with no censorship. With your host, Philip Van Houta. Hey everyone, welcome to the Rants About Humanity podcast. Today I have Kyrie Oliver as a guest, the big papa bear who's teaching men how to take responsibility, speak in their mind, having a lot of thought-provoking perspectives, and I couldn't have anybody better as a first guest on my Rants About Humanity podcast. How old are you, Kyrie? And I read that you recently found out that you became a dad. So how are you feeling right now and how did that impact you? Oh my gosh. I'm good, man. Thank you for having me on, first of all. Yeah, I found out it's probably about six weeks ago now. I was actually, it's kind of weird. I was in the middle of a client call and I was actually about to head on a jet to Las Vegas that afternoon. And I saw my girlfriend pacing back and forth. Like I could see her in the reflection of my TV screen. And I saw her walking back and forth through my house and just wondering what was happening. We bought a pregnancy. <laughs> That morning. Yeah. And then I see her cover her face and then run outside. And, and I, I hear her like on the phone with her best friend. And I was like, oh, I think I'm going to be a dad. And then as soon, I tried to wrap up my call as soon as I could. And I rushed upstairs and she's like <laughs> on the bed crying. And uh, she has like the test next to her. So she took two of them. So I found out I was going to be a dad that day. And then, uh, yeah, we've had to keep it a secret until yesterday we actually just announced it yesterday yeah man i read about it and then how does that impact you as a, as a man because often you know as a woman it's like oh my god i'm pregnant i'm carrying life for nine months how did it affect you or your view of the future i've been preparing to be a dad since i was 19 i'm 26 now i started reading parenting books i started interviewing people about parenting i actually got my dog specifically because it was a really difficult breed to raise i have a siberian husky so that it would be less of a transition from raising him to raising a kid. I've been ready to be a dad for so long. I'm damn near dad to most of my friends already. And so it's just, it feels like a natural transition. I've always wanted to be a dad. So it's not something that like, I didn't feel nervous at all. I'm lucky enough to have the type of business where I found that I'm going to be a dad. I transfer some money into another bank account and my kid's first year, two years is already paid for. That's actually pretty interesting because we live in an age where a lot of people are saying we are overpopulating the planet. They're not thinking about becoming a dad. They postpone becoming a mother like in their 30s or yeah. becoming a dad in their 40s and 50s. What made you take a different stance coming to fatherhood? So one of my friends actually did this and I, and I had the conversation with her and she actually now wants to be a mom. And she was set. She doesn't want kids overpopulated. We don't need more people. And I said, unfortunately, the people who are making that decision to not overpopulate the earth are probably the people who should be having kids because they're smarter, more stable. They typically have better jobs. And then they're thinking about the economic impact of having a child. I don't think the dumb people having six, seven, eight kids are thinking about the economic impact of their children. Or sometimes, unfortunately, you get paid more by the government or by government assistance, at least here in America, the more children you have. So there's an incentive for people who aren't producing much to have more kids. So I beg people who are doing well and who I think would would raise decent people to have more kids because we need more smart people in the world. I don't think it's necessarily we need less people. I think we need less stupid people. 
So yeah, let's just be honest. The dumb people and ignorant people are having more children. Way more. And from a funny standpoint, like from where I grew up, I realized the people who didn't have jobs had more kids. And because they're home fucking all day and they're not working, they're not doing what everybody else is doing that would distract them or would deter them from having children. So, yeah, the dumb people are out fucking the smart people and it's a little scary. I always am interested in like the, the father and masculinity models that you have. And we probably will talk about a huge taboo in the, I don't know if you're fully black, maybe half black or whatever. How is the relationship with your dad and growing up? What the kind of role model that you have? I didn't. Yeah, my parents got divorced when I was two months old. My mom was 20. My dad was 26. My mom was like a sweet little private school girl. My grandpa was the only chiropractor in the hometown that we grew up in. And my mom was modeling at the local mall. And my dad was a security guard at the local mall. And they met. And I think like two weeks later or something like that, she was pregnant with my brother. And so... You guys are fertile, bro. For real? (laughs) Jesus. It was... uh, You hit the bonsai, man. (laughs) (laughs) And so I think they just rushed into a relationship that probably shouldn't have happened. Or she didn't get pregnant, probably wouldn't have lasted very long. But they ended up married for two years. And then I came a year after my brother. And then they got divorced. We saw my dad once or twice a month, but he was scrambling to get himself together kind of my Mm -hmm. whole life. He he had a decent job, but not a great job. Bouncing around from house to house. He never had the same car. So it was just not a stable environment. And then I think he was scrambling so much to get his life together. He wasn't able to focus on us very much. And so like my girlfriend makes fun of me with how many movie quotes I know. And I know them because that was my parent when I was at my dad's house. We mm-hmm. watched cereal. And now I have an obsession with cereal. And I watch a lot of movies. And it was just kind of that's what we that's what we did whenever we were at dad's house. So I joke with my friends, like, I have to teach my friends how to change a tire on a car or how to fix something. I've learned it all just from Googling it or from YouTube. And I, I joke that YouTube was my dad in a lot of ways with like handiwork stuff or like just a lot of how to do life was learned either from my friend's parents or from a coach or from somebody I met online. So I didn't have that one consolidated source of like, this is what manhood looks like. I mean, that's pretty fascinating because this podcast is always going to break taboos or whatever, or talk about whatever is a taboo. Let's just call the elephant in the room. Like more than 70% in the black community is raised without a dad. Mm-hmm. And that's like a, one of the biggest predictors of uh, juvenile, but also incarceration in general. So that lack of male role models often create a situation where it already is stressful to raise a child with two people, let alone with a single mom. And what happens a lot in terms of the psychological dynamic is that the boys get castrated and that the women are a bit more butchable or masculine, you know, because they have to juggle that polarity of masculinity and femininity. Why didn't that happen with you? And how did you make a, have a different way of dealing with it? You know, I'm intrigued about it. I think that there is a big role that my mom being white and my mom's family being white had to play with it. While we struggled financially when I was younger, we didn't have like the societal pressure that I we probably would have had if my mom was black. There's just extra pressure put on it. There's extra difficulty with finding employment, finding housing, family assistance that we got that we wouldn't have gotten maybe if I didn't come from a partially white family. So I mean, really, my brother and I grew up in a white family. My dad was the only black family member we we had. Mm. Or maybe if we had an aunt or uncle visiting town from my dad's side. But 
the family I grew up with, there's 20 of us. My brother and I are the only little chocolate chips in a vanilla family. That's interesting because I'm always trying to look at different perspectives and I don't like people who are one-sided and say it's all white privilege or it's all black disempowerment or problem of the black community. Seeing you like kind of being in both worlds, how do you look at the fact of like white privilege? It was easier to be white or have a white mom and the fact of black people being disempowered or subjugated to less chances and less opportunities. How do you look at it? I think you can't get it unless you've lived it. And so when I see people, and I have a lot of friends who lean more on the conservative side, who will say, you know, there's no such thing as white privilege. Mm-hmm. And to me, it's funny. It's, it's funny and it's sad at the same time because it's like, how could you not see it? If you've ever lived where I've lived in my skin, you would see it all day long. You'd see it everywhere. I still see it all day long. And I'm a successful entrepreneur. Like, There's no mm-hmm. thing that I feel is really holding me back in life, but I still see that I've had to work harder. I still see the barriers that I've had, or I still see when I walk into a room, the skepticism of like, why the hell is he here? It costs money to get in this room. Why is he standing mm. there? I've seen from when I get pulled over the police and I still have a cold chill run down my spine, even though I know I don't have any warrants or I don't have anything illegal in my car, I still have that, oh shit, who is this person? Why are they pulling me over? Is it because of how I look? Do they have some preconceived thing about me? So I have to put on my white voice and I have to be over the top polite. I have to be over the top nice Yeah. yeah. with some of my friends. And they'll ask the police officer, what the fuck are you doing? Who the fuck do you think you are? Mm-hmm. Like shit I would never, ever say. And I grew up knowing you don't say that. You put your hands on the wheel. You say, yes, sir. No, sir. If they ask you to get out of the car, you get out of the car. I just got pulled over a few weeks ago mm-hmm. and I, I live in Arizona in the United States where I'm allowed to have a gun anywhere in my car that I want, as long as it's legal. I have multiple guns in my car and I got pulled over and lady asked me to get out of the car. And I want to say the white side of me Mm -hmm. wanted to say, do you have probable cause to pull me out of the vehicle? But the other side of me says it's safe. Then another officer comes and says, Hey, can I search your vehicle? Or she asked me if I had a gun in my car. And I said, yes, I'm legally allowed to own it. I don't think there should be a problem. Other officer comes up and says, can I search your vehicle? The white side of me again says, you have no probable cause. You pulled me over because you thought my registration, there was something wrong with Mm -hmm. my registration. Or you say that you thought there was something wrong with my registration. So again, that side of me wants to be able to argue it. There's Mm -hmm. the side of me that says, hey, my girlfriend's pregnant with my baby and I need to make it home where, okay, cool. Yeah, it's in my center glove compartment. Go ahead. And he opens up, looks at it, makes sure there's bullets in it, makes sure and clears it before he puts it back. Like everything worked out fine. But the fact that I had to do those extra steps and not be able to say, hey, this is against my rights and you shouldn't be allowed to be doing this right now. That I think is is an example of if I look differently, it would have been proper for me to act differently. Mm. And find 50 scenarios in the last six months that I've been in where my race has affected how I've been perceived or how I've been treated in a situation. So absolutely it's there. It's also not, for the most part, it's not a reason not to then still go succeed. You just have to work harder. If you would have your white and your black side and you would speak your white side to white people and have them pay attention to certain things that don't get enough attention and your black side to also talk about things for their perspective, what they could take responsibility for. What kind of message would you love to put out to white people? And what kind of message would you 
love to put out to black people, which is more focused on the responsibility they could take for certain things? Well, first of all, I would say that other person is just as scared of you as you are of them. That's something I realized with when I talk to my white friends when they come into contact with a black person is they're terrified. And I tell them so as a black dude, the guy who's, you know, puffs up his chest when he's walking around you or looks menacing, it's because he's nervous. It's not because he wants to rob you. It's because he's nervous because you do the wrong thing in front of the right white people and your life can turn around really fast. And so I think there is a big problem with personal responsibility when you're able to see the other side. And that's the caveat I'll put on it. Because when people say, you know, everybody can get out of their situation if they work harder. If all you see is people your color only getting out of your circumstances when they're selling drugs mm-hmm. or when they play sports, mm-hmm. you don't see that as a, as a possibility for you unless you're doing one of those things. I remember growing up and having the mentality of my friends around me, again, who don't have a family who has a doctor in it, who has a police officer in it, who has teachers in them. They didn't grow up seeing that, oh, there's a different possibility than making minimum wage or selling drugs or playing sports. When you can't see that as a possibility, you're now suffocated or relegated to this box, this box of I'm going to be miserable for the rest of my life or I need to do something illegal or something extraordinary athletically in order to get out of that box. So it kind of limits the vision of what you think for yourself of what is possible by looking at your surroundings and it kind of, you know, put like a ceiling of what's possible. What is your opinion then to kind of purposely then show these things in the media and give an advantage to black people to enhance the opportunities that people see? What is your stance towards that? I think it's at least in enhancing the vision of opportunity. I think showing more people, like my stepdad has a really good, maybe let's call it an anecdote that he says, where it used to be that successful Black people used to have to live around unsuccessful Black people. When segregation was still a thing, you had to live in the same community, whether you were a lawyer or a doctor, or whether you were the janitor next door. What happened is, I think that allowed young African-American people to see success inside their own community. Where uh, Oprah Winfrey or a Tyler Perry or a Barack Obama would be living next door to you, even with all the success that they've made, and you'd be able to see that as a possibility for yourself. What happens is that we integrated, and I've done the same thing. You get successful, you move out of your neighborhood. Because at some point, it's not safe to live in your neighborhood anymore. I can't go live where I grew up because I'd get robbed. People would try to take advantage of the money that I make now. And so I have to move into a neighborhood that's typically more suburban, more white, more affluent. But then the people who lived where I grew up don't get to see me. They don't get to see the example of the guy who made it out. And sure, at first it was because of athletics. I played division one football as a, as a college player, but I don't do anything having to do with athletics or football anymore. I've made it out in another way as well, but they don't get to see that. Or maybe they get to see me once or twice when I come back home for the holidays, but they don't get to see every single day somebody who looks like them doing well, that they can actually see the path that it took to get there. What do you think of, you remember the famous quote by Martin Luther King, like, we will have a free society when people are judged by the content of their character, not the color of their skin. And mm-hmm. it seems now with identity politics, racial politics, that it, again, it becomes a very decisive manner 
of just focusing only on the color of the skin. So how can we tackle racism without, I see it again, being about the color of the skin, like kind of being racist in the way, like how we treat it. So how can we make it again about enhancing opportunities while still tackling racism, et cetera, because it seems now society has become as divisive as like in the 60s when Martin Luther King was fighting for black rights. I think it takes a shift in our culture. And I don't see that happening in the near future because we always find a way to separate ourselves. In every society ever, whether it's been racism or classism or whatever ism you've seen or, or based on religion, you've always had a separation of people based on some belief system or how they look or where they grew up or how they were raised. I don't think our current population is capable of getting rid of that. Mm -hmm. I don't think we're anywhere close to getting rid of something like that, or it would just shift into something else. Even if we got rid of racism, now it's classism. Now it's something else. Now it's like, there's always going to be that thing that, that pervades through society. I think the best thing we're able to do is, is recognize where it's happening and help to level the playing field to the extent that we're capable of without castrating the rest of the population or without limiting the rest of the population. And I don't think we've done an amazing job of that. I do think there's a solution that does that. You think it's it's going to be solved in a political way or Black Lives Matter? Or do you see it differently, like how to really empower the Black community and change things? I think it, it happens with what the concept of Black Lives Matter is. Not the organization by any stretch of the imagination. I think they're horrible. Can you tell but, why? Because most people maybe might not know like the organization or why you would say that thing. I think the organization goes too far. I think the organization goes so far as white people have not been able to be trusted with power. So we should take the power from white people. I think it's crazy. I think it's stupid. And I, I think it goes too far, basically. I, I think the overreach that they're proposing goes way too far. I also personally think, but that's my opinion, and feel free to disagree, that what happened with George Floyd, that it, was a, it, it could have been a unique moment to get people together because I don't have any white people or friends who said like, oh my God, that cop was right or that was deserving. That was really a moment in time that the vast majority of people said, we should really do something about it. And it seems almost like, again, it's being hijacked to create polarity instead of people, instead of being constructive and do something about it. And it was such a missed opportunity to actually look at the same direction shoulder by shoulder and do something about it. I think what distracts from the shoulder by shoulder is that it, it felt typical. Because while the rest of the country, I absolutely agree with you, said, hey, this is wrong, this is fucked up, why did it happen in the first place? I know people have come out with his criminal record. I know people have come out with what he had done in the past. You don't do that to somebody who looks like you at the end of the day. It even goes down to like small things. I've talked about, I was talking to this guy at the poker table a few months ago next to me. And I was wondering why anytime, because a, a big part of poker is bluffing people, making people think you have a better hand than you actually do. And anytime the guy next to me had bet and I would bet again, or I would raise his bet, mm -hmm. He would show me his cards and he would fold them, whether I had a good hand or not. And I asked him why he was doing that at one point. And he said, you don't want to, typically, human behavior-wise, you don't want to have a bad rapport with the guy sitting next to you. Usually, that's the guy you're talking to. Usually, that's the guy, you know, hey, what are you drinking? I'll drink the same. That's the guy that you've kind of built a rapport with. And so, you're less likely to want to manipulate the guy next to you. So, he said, if you raise my bet, I'm just going to assume you're telling the truth because... I like you and you like me and we've been having a good conversation. And I think we do that with people who look like us. I think the same thing goes for 
if this guy looks like me, I'm less likely to sit on his neck for eight minutes, genuinely. And we can argue the merits of the guy. We can argue whatever we want. But the fact that it happened, I think, is what allows us to distract from the shoulder-to-shoulder piece of it. Because somebody who looks like you just did this to somebody who looks like me, and it's not the first time. And I think that's where it boils over. I think that's where the dam breaks. I also think it's gone too far into the looting, the rioting. It went too far in the other direction. Mm -hmm. But we need to find a centering on both sides. Why can't we, when something like that is not happening, then propose, hey, let's come together? Because a come together right after that looks like a cover-up. It looks like, all right, we fucked up. And now we should probably find a solution to this while it's just happening. But if we find a solution to it while it's not in a time of turmoil, I think we have a better chance of people being understanding. Yeah, and it's also when I listened to Martin Luther King or other influential black thinkers, it was a pro-movement, pro-black. But it seems sometimes it's like hijacked of being like anti-white. And then you sometimes play the same game that you're like blaming someone or their skin and you feel like guilty, et cetera, and you create polarity so people don't come together. So I believe much more in the pro-black, like let's build an own community, let's enhance opportunities and give everybody equal chances and still see the value in having your own ethnicity without ignoring other ethnicities, but it becomes such a destructive, unconstructive anti-movement that it's almost like they don't want a solution on both sides because it creates opposition, creates attention, and things stay the same, and people can keep on arguing, tweeting, you know, get votes, manipulate things. That way, everything stays the same, but people just keep on discussing about nonsense, you know? I think it's such a pity. Yeah, and I think it, it does continue to be a cyclical thing because it's a pendulum swing. It's they see it so far in one direction that how much mass do we need to put behind our side to make it swing the other way? And the big thing, I like I was just talking to my neighbor the other day and he's like, dude, I, I finally understand what racism feels like. He's an old white guy. And he's like, yes. I, I get flipped off for having a, a thin blue line flag on the back of my car. My girlfriend's dad has the same thing. He has a thin blue line flag. Her brother's a police officer. And I mean, we have two police officers in my family. One of them is my brother's fiance. And she's a woman and works for LAPD, uh, Los Angeles Police Department. And they're now having a glimpse of what other people have felt for a very long time. And I don't think it's right. It's not me saying it's right. It means hopefully you're seeing what other people have gone through for a very long time. And I think eventually, even though it doesn't feel good right now, I think eventually the perspective starts to shift where now we have a commonality. I know what racism feels like because I've seen it my whole life. You now know what racism feels like because you felt it for the last few years. What the difference is, is that racism, when perpetuated for hundreds of years, you start creating systems to support racism. It's not to say that there are racist systems because I don't think Most of the systems were created to be anti-Black, anti-minority. But what do we do when we're in power, when anybody's in power? You make life easier for people who look like you. So it's not an anti-Black thing. I think it's a very pro-white thing. You look at laws that have been passed for voting, for land ownership. It was, you know, married white men or landowning white men who got the privileges because that's who's in power. That's what we expect. Hopefully, that's what we expect for people to do is make life easier for people who look like them. And part of that is maybe having more diversity in 
the Senate, in the in Congress, in the people who are making the decisions behind what the country does. I think when we have more of a representative version of that, I think we get closer and closer to a representative society. But something like that takes time. And on one part is being like acknowledged for the fact of your position and seeing things from your side. One of the dangers that I see in it is that it could end in revenge. Like I witnessed this, I want you to feel the same thing, you know, and then it inflicts pain on other people because you feel so much in pain. People are doing that right now. What the point is to bring it to balance. So the pendulum, again, it may shift partially in that way. But I think the overall goal for us is to bring it back to balance. I think the overall goal for us is to say, here's a medium where we all feel represented, where we all feel cared for, where we all feel, I think a lot of it goes off of how people feel. And and that was like a big argument for Donald Trump was like, you know, he's doing all these things for the minority community. He's passing all these laws that, that help minorities, but he doesn't make you feel accepted. He doesn't make you feel like he's your president. And that was the argument. And again, I've been on other podcasts and I've talked to people about it. I don't expect a 75-year-old white dude to understand mm-hmm. my predicament or my perspective. It's just not something I can expect of you. It would be unfair of me. And what happened with Obama then for eight years? He was black. I was too young to really pay attention, to mm-hmm. understand. But again, I think that's why there has to be a change, not just in the presidency, but I think there has to be a change in us culturally because I think personally, sometimes it's about power and you can ascribe power to the color of your skin. But I think the, how are you, the higher you go, it's more about power and keeping your power. So I think there was so much hope with Obama and change. And yes, we can. And finally, black president. And then you had eight years like a black president who didn't really enhance the situation of black people in general. So a lot of people sometimes put too much hope in people in certain powerful positions, like when it's a woman in power, then finally women be empowered. Or when it's a black person in power, they will be empowered. But we have enough evidence that the higher up you go in the power hierarchy, the more it becomes almost like psychopathic, narcissistic, enhancing their power, money, and influence, and then just keep on continuing the same thing in their own globalist or, you know, influenced families, you know, and then predominantly white, okay, but it's more about that power grab, you know. I agree. And that's why I think on a local state and nationwide level, besides the presidency, I think that's where the balance needs to happen. And I wish more people understood the limitation of the powers of the president. The president's not this big figure pointing his finger and saying, this is what's going to happen. It just doesn't work that way. And so we've just done a good job of making people think that it really does, that Donald Trump was pointing his finger and saying, or like waving a magic wand and now we're building a wall, or now we're doing this. Mm -hmm. It doesn't happen that way. There's checks and balances that we learned about in seventh grade in the United States that people just forgot about because it's easier to say, here's the bad guy, here's the good guy, now go fight against the other people. Let's talk about also another thing that sometimes divides people, and we see a lot of these things like recently about masculinity and sexism and Me Too movement. I also know that you have a big opinion about it. So Did you see masculinity and femininity and the whole topic about it and discussion about it changing when you grew up to now? Oh, yeah. It started off with a lot of dickheads being brought to light. It started off with men in power who were taking advantage of women getting called out about it. And then like so many things, when people feel momentum behind their movement, they don't just want to stop at zero at equality. They want to go past it to help protect you. 
but we do that in our individual lives as well. If I've been taken advantage of in a former time of my life, I'm going to build up a protective shell for myself and I want to overcompensate for, for where I felt weak before. And so it's a natural inclination to say, well, now that we're calling out men who have taken advantage of us, now let's start calling out men who may look like a threat to possibly take advantage of us in the future. And I think that's what started happening. It started becoming a witch hunt for what guy's doing something or said something when he was drunk one night that made me feel like maybe someday he could possibly do something wrong to me. And I think that's where we passed the line from constructive to now you're just, it's a power grab, just like you said. You can have a correction in the power relations and saying generally these people have power, but in the end, we're also humans. I mean, they can be black criminals, they can be white criminals, they can be male assholes, but they can be also white bitches. I mean, yeah. have you seen women sometimes behave or how they manipulate or what they do to just think like it's all the fault of men and they're like evil and they're toxic and masculinity is negative. I mean, it's a spectrum. Every extreme can become perverted. It doesn't mean that just because you have a certain color or ethnicity, you're impervious to critique and you can be evil, you know? Yeah, I agree. And I've seen it. We've, I think we've all seen examples of when being a female can go in that situation can go too far. Or like, I, I know there were some things on college campuses being passed like rape allegations mm -hmm. where in the middle of a sexual encounter, without it being said, a woman can decide that she no longer wants to engage in it, not mm -hmm. tell the man. And from that point on it's considered rape and men being kicked off of campuses and men being fined or jailed because in the middle of it, she decided she didn't want to have sex with him anymore, did not tell him that she didn't want to have sex with him anymore. But from the point that she decided she wasn't into it anymore, from then on, it was considered a rape or a sexual assault. To that level, I think it's insane and we need to be better human beings. Well, when you talk about, and I think you have a lot of input about this, and I had great books about it, and my whole entry into self-development was learning about pickup and seduction, which is more about tactics, but I don't support anymore. But it helped me understand, like, I'm being a nice guy. I'm like listening to your stories here on the couch and I keep on ending up in the friend zone. Like what's going on here? And then I realized about the implicit communication, my confidence as a man, like leading, like step-by-step, step, you know, but she wants to be surprised. She wants to be led. She wants a confident man. And that goes completely contrary to asking permission. Can I talk with you? Can I touch you here? Can I kiss you? Can I sleep with you? Do you have a permission slip? That is not attractive at all. That's acting like a child who gets permission from their mommy. When someone is your mommy, there's no sexual tension beyond, beyond it. So it's almost like women want to be surprised by a man sexually and in terms of seduction by somebody that they like. But if they don't like it, no, 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 no. Then it's a rapist and an asshole, et cetera. But, you know, sex is implicit. Seduction is implicit. When you made seduction implicit, it loses all the tension and seduction is partly playing with tension. And as a man taking a guess, taking a leap out of confidence and then hoping that it will be okay, you know, and going for it. I think enough of those women need to become old bitchy ladies with cats. And that's what's going to happen to a lot of them. They're going to have, have had such a hard boundary on what men aren't allowed to do where I, I will I'll be the strong woman in this situation. And they're going to be old and bitchy with cats and be like, fuck, I should have done it. Fuck, I should have leaned in. Fuck, I shouldn't have been so crazy. And they're not going to realize it until 40 years from now 
when they're completely stuck alone. Yeah, because I see some of these women asking of men to act a certain way, like almost like a friend and a nice guy. But you see in real life that that behavior is not turning them on. It's not getting them excited. So they want men that they don't like to behave that way, but men that they do like, no, 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 ignore that because we want you to be more alpha, more leading. So it's almost schizophrenic in terms of what they say and what's being told to men, especially young men right now. And what actually is the bit the female-male dynamic in terms of like seduction and attraction? And I get you not wanting it from a guy that you don't like. That's fine. Mm -hmm. But to then go say that he's doing something illegal because you don't like him, that's the part where it gets a little crazy. I mean, you've seen it on my statuses before Mm -hmm. where women will try to come to me with the toxic masculinity (laughs) thing. And the thing I go back to is my girlfriend's on the couch with me laughing her ass off at these women because she knows they're single. She knows they're miserable. Or -hmm. if they're married, they have a horrible dynamic in their relationship. Because first thing I go do when I get these women on my statuses, I go look at whether they're married. And then I go look at their husband. And their husband looks mopey and dopey in every single picture. Like she's for sure. And so we, we still laugh at it because I didn't ask her permission on any step of that journey. But I'm still thinking the entire time, what is okay? What's not okay? Where's the nuance? What's the thing? What's the next step? You know, where do you lean in? Where do you lean back? It's damn near a mathematical equation going on in our heads as men, the whole entire process when it comes to physicality with a woman or when it comes to conversation. Yeah, I think this is often not talked about. You maybe can be almost kissed by a nerd who is like addicted to Star Wars and games all the time. And like, oh my God, you turn her cheek and you feel a bit disgusted. But the whole shame of trying as a guy to kiss a woman and feeling rejected or being ghosted, man, that goes deep, man. Like, oh, your whole sense of self-worth and self-esteem, it gets crumbled. Some guys don't even approach women anymore. Their whole self-esteem is shattered. And it's never talked about that shame and guilt that men feel when they finally open themselves up and go for a woman and they feel brutally rejected. And that's the thing is the brutal part. You should feel mildly rejected because it's feedback. Hey, mm-hmm. you approached this wrong. You didn't approach this in the way that you should have. I agree with mild feedback, 100%. If you lean in for a woman and it wasn't the time, she mm-hmm. should lean back. She should make you wait for it. Or she should tell you, hey, no, I thank you, but I, no, thank you. The brutality of the what? Fuck no. And like making a scene in front of other people or making you just outright look like a horrible person for trying, that's the part where it gets a little crazy. But again, I've only ever had it happen twice. And both of the times I was with the woman when I got rejected, mm-hmm. like one of them, she was at work and I, I just leaned in, I dropped something off for her at work and I leaned in real quick and she like pulled back because she was at work and wasn't supposed to. And I looked around, I was like, <laughs> oh, I feel gross. Oh, I got to go back to my truck now. Bye. Don't talk to me anymore. And I remember the feeling still. I was with this woman. Like she lived with me. And I still remember how, oh, the negative feedback has a physical response to it. It's like, and then now I was easily able to realize like, okay, she's at work. Not a big deal. But if you're on a singular date and you're in front of her house and she does that, you then have to go back to the drawing board and figure out why figure out where you could have made her feel more secure. Like take the responsibility of I did something that didn't make her feel the way that she needed to feel in order for me to get to that next step. What do I need to do differently with her or with the next woman to make them feel in a place to do that with me? And again, it was a constant tug of war with me and my current girlfriend 
I pursued like crazy. And I really think men should be the ones who pursued. But as soon as I realized I liked her, the girl who was staying with me was out. I, I got her a flight back to where she was going to. Mm-hmm. And I pursued the woman I'm with now. I went, she lived a, a state over, two states over. I think in three months, I went out there four times to go visit her. And the first time I pretended like I was on a business trip. I wasn't on mm-hmm. a business trip. I was there for business, but not for anybody else. <laughs> My own hotel. And I said, hey, I just happened to be in town. It was in Austin, yeah. Texas. If you want to hang out, you know, I'd love to grab dinner with you. I'd love to grab lunch with you. And I think we got lunch as soon as I landed. And then she came over to my hotel room that night. And then we hung out the whole next day. And then we went on a date for dinner. And then I think the third day I was there, we had plans. So we went out to lunch. We did a glass one class. And then I flew out. And she asked me, she's like, did you end up meeting with your clients that you were that you were supposed to meet up with? And I made up some excuse about like, oh, no, they had to reschedule or something. I went out there for her anyway. And then then, Goldilocks got into the bed of the big papa bear. She did. She liked it. Yeah, and the honeypot, man. I'm going to tell you honestly, like, you know, in this pot, it's first episode, but I was a virgin until I was 24, man. I was self-loathing. I was depressed. I had no idea what I had to do. I thought I was a loser. I thought I just had to be nice and cater to women and they will like me. And all of the women back then already, and it's increasingly now with Instagram that they get so much attention, that they only date assholes or narcissists who don't have the best intentions in mind. Why? They are the only ones, not you, but in the vast majority, they're the only ones who are still approaching women. And you know, there's a very dirty thing and people can read about it. It's called hypergamy. And that means that women date up higher in the status level. Doesn't have to be money or whatever, but women want someone they can look up to, someone they admire. And when you're in your 20s and you're a man, you're trying to you know, date a woman, oftentimes they date much older men, much more successful men, and it's an uphill battle. But when you're a self-evolved man who takes care of your own future, when you're 30 and leave your legacy, your chances go up. And you might not like it that men judge women more on their appearance, but your appearance as a woman goes down in your 30s. Your status go up uh, in your 30s when you take care of yourself as you can in, in your 30s. So you have a lot of women who want to have a child before they're 35 and put a lot of pressure, like, I want to have a child anyway. And then they're a year with a guy. And then, you know, you have a, a split family where they're like divorced. And you yep. also have, on the other hand, this mixed out, these guys who are just fucking around, fooling around, whatever, and playing games with women, partly also because they have been played with a lot in their 20s and being taken for granted. So again, it becomes a kind of revenge thing and playing games, you know. Yeah, it's a whole game that people like to play. It's just not something I take part in. And it's not something the men that I teach, I don't, they don't take part in it. We don't struggle for power with women. And that's that's one of my number one rules is we don't struggle for power in a relationship with a woman. That's the what men- I would love to hear more about because often people think like, oh my God, you're training men in masculinity. Are you helping men to take advantage of women, to manipulate women, to use tactics, oh. to be an asshole? So that's where responsibility comes in. The responsibility is you're the masculine figure. You're naturally physically more powerful. Usually you make more money. Usually you have higher social status. Usually. Triggered. For real. (laughs) But the crazy thing is like my girlfriend and the people I know who are in very, very good relationships, they love it. She likes that I make more money than her. She likes that she doesn't have to, you know, she owns her own business. She runs her own online business and makes damn good money. 
in a visual way, you protect her, you provide for her, you provide like security for her. It doesn't mean that she can't earn her money, but often that safety, that protection, that strength is something that is appealing to most women. They love it from the right guy. They love it and they crave it from the right guy. And the woman who tells you she doesn't has been hurt. And I understand you've been hurt and you probably shut yourself off to the possibility. And at the end of the day, we're not looking for that woman. The woman who pushes back too much, like she made me chase her. She made me pursue her and I liked it. And I got rewarded at the end of it because I made the right moves, because I said the right things and I did the right things and I'm the right person. So that's where the whole pickup artist game versus what I teach, I think are very different. And probably why you went away from the the pickup artist places. It teaches you how to do the thing. It doesn't teach you how to be the person. Being the person- It sounds like tactics, like do this, say this, dress like this, but it's just like, you know, makeup on a pig. I tell people all the time, you and I can walk up to a girl, not you, a random guy who, who's learned pickup artist crap. You and I can walk up to the same girl in a club. You can do all your pickup lines and I can say a fart joke and I'll take the girl home. <laughs> it's the energy you carry around yourself is way more important than the things you say or you trying to look confident when you're scared shitless. You can walk up to a girl and be like, hey, I was super nervous to come over here, but I'd love to buy you a drink. Like being honest and being you in that situation, it's allowed and it's actually really, really rewarded when you come in with the right energy and you're still able to be confident. And she'll test you. When my girlfriend and I went out to lunch that last day I was there in Austin, we sit down for lunch and she says, hey, I just want you to know I'm not a fan of yours. I was like, excuse me? What the fuck does that mean? Like, did I do something wrong? And she had said, you said the last girl you were talking to acted like a fan. And she acted like you were God. And she acted mm-hmm. like you were the greatest thing in the world. And I told her I, I didn't like it. It wasn't something I was looking for. But I understand why some men look for that. And she says, I want you to know, like, I'm not here with you because I think you're cool online. Because I think you have this cool business. I'm here with you because I wanted to get to know you more. It's so cool. And the next thing she says, I'm also not really ready to date anybody yet. Which again, on the surface, like, well, fuck, what am I doing here then? And we're about to go to this class together, like this glass blowing class Mm -hmm. that I set up for us, like a private class for us to be together. And then I'm flying home. What the fuck? And then I remember thinking in my head, she had told me about her exes. She had told me about relationships that hadn't worked in the past. Mm -hmm. And so my ability now, because I've stepped into myself and I've stepped into understanding women and understanding their hurts and, and what that does to them. She wasn't saying she's not ready to date. She's saying she's not ready to get hurt again. And I Mm -hmm. told my student that that fucking night we were on the phone and I told him, here's what she said, but here's what she meant. And what she meant was, I'm not ready for a man to hurt me again. So -hmm. what do I do? I say, okay, no problem. We don't have to date. Let's just go have fun. So we're in the car listening to all the music we grew up with because my girlfriend and I went to high school together, but we didn't know each other. Mm -hmm. We just followed each other on social media since like 2012. And so we're singing all the songs we grew up with. We're dancing. We're having fun. We go to the glassman class. We're joking. We're keeping it light. And then I realized she's starting to like me. Like really, she, Mm -hmm. and she actually says it now. She's like, I regretted telling you I wasn't ready to date somebody. Because as we were driving to the glassman class was when I realized I wanted to date you. Mm -hmm. But what do I do is I still keep playing the game. Oh, you're not ready to date. We shouldn't. And so I go back home. And the only thing I do over the next like three weeks is understand where she's come from, Mm -hmm. understand what's happened to her in past relationships and be the exact opposite. 
be the guy who can reassure her, who can be communicative when other men haven't, who can reassure her when other men have been avoidant, who can do the things that she hadn't seen in past relationships. And that's me building my foundation now. So by the time I come back out, I came back out for Valentine's Day. She was already sold. The first night I was there, she sat me down on the couch and was like, hey, you haven't really told me how you feel about me. And what's my response? Hey, you're not ready to date anybody yet. I have to throw it back at her. And it's funny. It's a joke. We obviously like each other. And so I said, I think you need to go first. And then she tells me how she feels. And I feel the exact same. And we start dating from then on. But it's that tension that we're playing off of. We're playing off of, at first, she's not too sure. She just needs to be reassured. A no isn't always a no. A no is pursuing. Sometimes. Again, sometimes a no is a no and you're gross and go away. But sometimes a no equals pursuing. I want to feel pursued. I want to feel like I'm the prize and I'm a reward. And if you do it well and you make me feel the way I need to feel secured, then you get the reward at the end of the, at the, end of the game. Yeah, I often make a, a visual analogy. And like I said, this podcast is raw and filters with no censorship. And it was one video I have like, I used to like Elliot Hall's. I, I don't agree with some things that he says right now, but gone off the rails. Dude. Look, look at, oh yeah, look at, uh, at our genitals. A man has to be, have an erection, be excited, be confident, because if he's not confident, he can't get the erection. And if it's too excited, he comes too fast. So you have to have a forward motion, believe in yourself, be confident, be energetic, and you have to deliver energy. A woman is more like softening up, opening up, inviting in. And when you have those two polarities of the masculine and the feminine, you have the beautiful dance of the two, you know? So even in our genitals, you can see a bit like what the masculine is and what the feminine is, you know? Yeah. And you can't just jab her with it when she's not ready because then you become that guy. You become the guy she tells her friends about and not in a good way. You have to create the space for her to soften and open up. I believe that's your responsibility as a man. Our responsibility is to create an environment for her in which she feels happy to open up, not reluctant, not hesitant, even if, and it's not in her words. Oh, that's the part that I think people have misused. If I know when she says no, and it's not really a no, but what happens is there have been so many men who have misread the situation because they're thinking about their themselves and not about her. If all I'm doing is reading you, I'm not going to make a mistake because all I'm doing is going off of what your body's telling me, what you're saying. But if I'm going off of what my dick's telling me, I'm going to make a whole lot of fucking mistakes. I'm going to fuck up a whole lot. And so a lot of times it's a practice in empathy. I think really pursuing women is a practice in empathy. I have to understand you in order to be invited in. Now, if the woman's just out at a club trying to take a dude home, that's totally different. I'm I'm talking about pursuing long-term relationships. Yeah. And it's also, like you say, like emotional intelligence is figuring out her needs, but also figuring out your needs. And one of the most disheartening experiences that sometimes she tests you to say no and stand by your values, your standards, your boundaries, because else you give a finger, you give a hand, you give, you know, your whole arm and she respects you less. So the woman doesn't always want you to give in to what she wants. She wants to test yourself in your unshakable masculine confidence. And she feels like, yes, that's what hard to get is. If there's always a part of what you have that she has difficulty to conquer, you're a challenge. And, and that's just what they like. And they feel, I tell my girlfriend, she feels invigorated when I tell her no. And I know it. She'll be bratty about it sometimes. She's like, she'll, she'll act like, you know, she's not getting what she wants, but they want you to tell them no. 
And it's not like this is weird power dynamic power struggle, but sometimes it's a test. Sometimes it's how far will you go? Sometimes is it, will you, will you castrate yourself for me? And this is what most, so many men fail this test is, will you castrate yourself for me? And they'll put you in a test that makes you either hand over your balls or keep them. That's is sometimes that a lot of men say like, I gave her what she wanted. She was nagging and now I'm there and the woman loses attraction. She become, He becomes a puppy dog and there's no attraction anymore. It's like, isn't this what she wanted? No, she wanted to challenge and to you be in your unshakable boundaries and stand by that limit. If you want a high value woman, you have to see her as a shark. You have to be a shark as well because a shark dating a penguin isn't going to fucking work. She's going to wake up every day wondering why she wants to eat you alive. Wondering why she hates you. And I've seen this dynamic with my clients before mm. where she's super successful. He just happens to be along for the fucking ride and he does everything she says. She says all the time, my husband does everything right. I can't figure out why I fucking hate him because she doesn't want you doing everything she says. She wants pushback. She needs it. She craves it. But if you don't ever push back, she fucking hates you. Like, and, and she will, she'll resent you forever. You guys can be married for 30 years with kids. Cause I've seen these relationships where they're married for a long time. They have kids. It looks successful from the outside. And I can just see them sitting down to have dinner together or see, see them sitting down for a movie. And I can tell she wants to fucking slit his throat. Like she can't fucking stand that. He's not a man in the relationship and she craves it and she wants it. But she has to deal with him not being it. Because and, and that is, to be honest, also, uh, it, it's a challenge for me and for a lot of men, I think, to, fa- to, to have empathy for her, to take her needs into account, but not so much that how she feels completely determines how you feel. Because when you lose your mojo, when you lose your confidence, when you lose your being in the zone, that's often what women find the most attractive. Like, look at my guy there doing his thing and, you know, like being in his zone. And you can have so much empathy or so much codependent on how she feels that it has too much impact on your old self-image and how you feel. So that's it. It's when empathy becomes codependence. It's that line right there that we're playing with. Empathy is fine. I can feel what you feel and still make a solid decision. And that decision doesn't necessarily have to reflect what you wanted because of how you felt. But when I go into codependency, my decision will always reflect your emotions because that's what you think you want at the time. I tell my girlfriend all the time. I tell women all the time, you don't know what you want. You can never decide where to eat. I can't expect you to know what you want from day to day. Sometimes you have to be told what you want. And it's not that you're incapable of thinking for yourself. It's not in any way to take away your independence. It's to say lifestyle decision-making has most of the time defaulted to men. And I think we're just more wired for that, the decision-making side. You're wired for the nurturing and caring side, and we need both. But there's so many times where she's, I mean, even I make fun of her still for telling me she didn't want to date me because that's not what she wanted. That's what she thought at the time. That's what her emotions told her. Mm. And you can, you can pull out, if I was to record it for a week, I could think of 10 times where she says, hey, I want to do this, or hey, I don't want that. And it's a complete farce. It's absolutely not what she was thinking. It's what she felt at the time. And so now we have to take in their emotions into account while still thinking long-term, while still thinking strategically, while still thinking logically. And I think that's where the leadership comes from. I'm going to take you into account because I love you. I'm going to make the right decision because I love you. And those may not be the same thing. 
Yeah, that's one of the th things that I often label as leadership. Leadership is believing in a vision before it's yet manifested and believing in it and going for it. So sometimes you have to go into that terrain of uncertainty to really believe like this will happen and then it will manifest itself. And often women follow that banner, but you first have to carry that banner proudly. You have to conquer too. You have to win. You have to be right in those situations of your vision. Because if we've also seen the dynamic where he says he has a vision and, hey, just follow me. Hey, just trust me. And it's seven years down the road and he's still broke. It's seven mm -hmm. years down the road and they're still living yeah. in a tree. And she starts to not believe you when you say, I'm doing this. Leadership isn't just given to you because you're a man. Leadership is earned over and over again. Did I make the right decision? Did I move us in a positive direction? When I tell her, hey, I'm going to go spend this money. I'm going to go do this thing. She trusts me because it works out. She trusts me because I'm able to afford our lifestyle. She trusts me because... I've shown a track record of being right when my vision is there. If you can't show that track record of being right, she loses respect for you. You're no longer allowed to be the dominant. You're no longer allowed to be the leader in your relationships. You got to sit down like a puppy and she gets to guide it. She gets to tell you everything to do because you're incapable. Yeah, maybe at the end, we'll talk a bit just about masculinity and just some practical tips about it. One thing's that often comes back if you don't believe in the whole political correct kind of nonsense stuff is... Men love respect and women love love. Men want to be respected more and women want to be loved more. Maybe it's a spectrum of masculinity and femininity, but the spectrum of masculinity is vastly more prevalent in males than in females, you know? So often when we communicate as men, it's like straightforward. You tell a problem to me, I'm going to give you a solution, you know, and then we're going to solve it. But in a way, as a man, it's to be a rock to let her emotional waves crash into you and she feels safe. You know, you have the lighthouse and she can take care of it. It's not a matter of just solving it or rationally getting a solution. So that's often also when you only have male friends and a male way of communication that you also think that that is a female way of relating and communicating. Solutions-based. Yeah, we're, we're solution-based creatures and they're not. They want to feel validated. They want to feel understood. How would you define masculinity and femininity for people say like, you know, it's fluid. You have masculinity in men and women. You have femininity in men and in, in women and men. How would you answer that question about what constitutes masculinity and femininity? I think a book that does it well is um, The Way of the Superior Man. I believe it's by David Data. And it talks about polarity inside of relationships and, and that it's a requirement for a good relationship. You need polarity. And so while it's a spectrum, masculine and feminine, you have a natural tendency. I've yet to find somebody whose natural tendency is half and half, or one of the sides is guided by a past trauma. So there's women who are more masculine. A lot of times I can pinpoint a time at which they felt like they had to be masculine and they've built that side up and they made themselves believe that that's who they are. Same thing for women, men, femininity. I've seen a lot of times barring, I, and this is in heterosexual relationships, where a guy feels more feminine and I can usually trace back a time where he felt like he had to be more feminine and that's protected him from something ridicule from his mother, ridicule from women. Cause a lot of, I joke about men baiting their way into women's panties all the time. Men think they white need to nights. Yeah. Yep. Those white nights. It's uh, men who think that they or need black nights <laughs> themselves. Hey, a whole lot less on that side, but it still happens. <laughs> It's, yeah, it's that baiting your way into their panties. If I'm just understanding enough, if I'm just the nice guy, then they'll want to sleep with me. And it's so kind of this narrative that's being pushed, I feel, by the mainstream media because, and, and Hollywood and all these cities, because you see the masculine figures are like 
Homer Simpson, stupid putt says, you know, the only rational person is a female in the family. And I go back to the, I'm, I'm just, because listeners are not seeing this, but we're drinking like some rum and some uh, good scotch. And I'm looking at these movies, uh, you know, with Frank Sinatra, Humphrey Bogart, you know, Bruce Willis, these, these masculine figures like fighting, providing for their family, sorting stuff out. You can see that also the cultural narrative in terms of movies and series has completely shifted towards how males are being presented. So you don't have a lot of alpha role models or masculine role models that people can look up to now. I agree. I don't know if it was on purpose or like what just started making the most money was the, the, the doofy dad, the guy who makes all the mistakes in the world and the mom has to put it back together. That's not a reflection of what my life has looked like. That's not a reflection of what most positive relationships I've seen where he just is I just haven't seen it. And so you can take it from the movies, but that's a super sad perspective to take that I think a lot of people unfortunately do. The best relationships I've seen, because what I would go off of, no matter what the movies say, no matter what Hollywood says, is who do you know that has the best relationships, who you can tell are drastically like in love with each other. And those are the ones that I want to look at. And those are the ones that I've interviewed. I've interviewed over a thousand people. I know what patterns to look for in relationships to see what's good and what's bad. And by and large, the man having the leadership role when he's earned it is the dynamic to go with for a positive family structure. Again, it's if he's earned it. If he hasn't earned it, she should take the reins and she should lead and she should do all that. But she's going to be miserable because that's not her natural state. That's not where she wants to be physiologically biologically like it, we're wired certain ways argue it if you want we're wired certain ways now we can fight against that we can fight against our nature and certain you know alternative lifestyles can be positive for them mm-hmm. you know it can work out for them but let's say by and large let's talk about the 90 plus percent of people mm-hmm. 90 plus percent of couples this is what works a man who's earned his leadership role inside of his family and carries that role well yeah, because that is often a distinction that people don't seem to be able to make in a postmodernist era that they mistake a generalization for something that is universal. It doesn't mean that what we say it is universal. We're just saying certain patterns are pretty general. And if you're looking for solutions, often those general ways are often the preferred solutions. Not the only one, but in most cases, they will be the most health- helpful. I learned would- it last week and it was heteronormative. I'd never heard heteronormative. <laughs> And I had asked, it was my little cousin who taught it to me and I asked her what that was. And she said, basically, it's just a a saying that like what heterosexual couples typically do is what should be normalized. Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, yeah, she's like, well, yeah, that's, that's toxic. And that's not how we should be going about things. And I asked why she's like, well, it makes other people feel abnormal. It makes other people feel like they're doing something wrong. I was like, I, it doesn't sound like that to me. Heteronormative mm-hmm. means like, here's what the normal standard is for most people. Yeah. Most heterosexual in a man, male, female relationship. Why would that not be the default? Why would that not be the normal? And then everything else can be another option. But the normal that most people do is this. It doesn't mean that anything else is bad. It doesn't mean anything else is, is less than. Sometimes it may be. It's no value judgment. It's just a pattern in general that happens. And when I have a pattern to take into account, it's like I have a framework. I can have room for the exception. It doesn't mean that, but it still is the exception because an exception is something that falls outside of the norm. It doesn't mean I judge it. It's just outside of the norm. 
Exactly. And you can take that straight to a numbers perspective, down to statistics, standard deviations. Here's what's average 68, what is it? 68.7% is going to fall within one standard deviation of the norm. And we have a much higher percentage of that of heterosexual couples. I guarantee it's somewhere in the 90s of percent. So why would we not create standards and practices around what's over 90% of people are doing? It's insane to think anything else. But again, people make a value judgment, like you said, or people perceive a value judgment from it, or they feel you know, inadequate, or they feel like they're not being countered or represented, or you're, uh, you're invalidating me. I love those arguments. You're invalidating me. I'm offended. You're here in front of me. You're valid. I got you. But you're just wrong on this perspective. Now, for men uh, struggling with their masculinity, you would love to give them some tips to improve or some steps to start with in the beginning or for women to rediscover their femininity. What are some ways, resources, things that they could do, you think, that could help them cultivate a more integrated masculinity or femininity? For the women specifically, I would ask, is it coming from power or fear? Your masculine traits, are they coming from a place where you felt empowered or a place where at one point you felt fearful? Typically, it comes from a place of fear, but the masculine shell that they've had to build up has made them successful. Because if I'm a woman and I'm acting more masculine, I'm now more in a competitive role with men around me. I can build my business. I can look powerful. I can feel powerful. And what happens is you end up getting to a point where you've suffocated the nurturing motherly, the actual, what I would say, powerful side of yourself to go compete with men in something that men are naturally naturally have more of a drive for. It's not that you can't be successful. It's not that you can't go compete. It's that the energy with which you approach it, if it's not your natural state, is not going to result in you feeling whole. And then the same thing for men, how you approach life, does it come from a place of power? Does it come from a place of fear? And it's typically the opposite. The things that we've feared in the past are places in which we feel more feminine. We feel like we've been conquered. We feel like we've been taken advantage of in some way that makes you feel more feminine. The places that we feel powerful, that we feel confident in are typically more masculine traits that we hold. And I think finding a balance of them because feminine isn't isn't necessarily bad for a man. Mm -hmm. I feel like when you pray as a man, you're being feminine. When you cuddle with your children, you're being feminine. You're, You're showing that nurturing. There's nothing wrong with it. There's something wrong when it's the leading thing for you. It steals your vigor. It steals your ability to produce and to create like you're supposed to. So I think fitting into what your natural state looks like or getting as close to that as possible, I think is ideal for everybody, for all of us to create that polarity in life. Are there some role models or movies or way of acting that, for instance, women can look forward to and say, hey, this is a bit of femininity that you can aspire yeah. to because nowadays it's difficult to find it you know the the biggest single is wet ass pussy by cardi b you know and i don't know you can have her as a role model but i don't know it's different than audrey hepburn in in you know like beginning of the 20th century you know typically and i'd say over 90 percent of the time i don't have people set their sights outside of themselves mm-hmm. and so as far as a role model it's once you realize that there's a place for you to grow in your femininity, in your masculinity. Now set that 10 years out. What does that look like for me? Who do I want to be in 10 years as it pertains to my masculinity or my femininity? What, do, what pieces do I need to step into on myself? What trauma do I need to uncover and to help myself heal? 
What do I need to do in order to become this better version of myself 10 years from now? And use that as your role model. My role model has always been me in 20 years. So right now, my my role model is 46-year-old Kyrie. And whenever I come up against the decision, my one question is, what do I need to do right now that he's going to look back and be proud of? That my 46-year-old self, I'm 26 right now, what is my older version of myself going to look back and say, God damn, yeah, I'm glad I did that. I'm glad I did this versus the other thing. I'm glad I went here versus over there. And it helps me through so many different things. And it helps me the fact that I don't put it outside of myself. Because what happens is we create a role model outside of ourselves. And all of a sudden, a scandal comes up. All of a sudden, they fall short of our expectations. And immediately, we go, what does that say about me? And I did it before with with setting role models outside myself. Other men that I really respected. And then I got too close to them. And I saw that they were human. I hated the human side of them because I, I thought that they were better than that. And so when I expected them to be something other than what they were, that's where my disappointment came in. That's where I said, well, shit, if they can fall short, what about me? But when I come in, I already know my own flaws. I already know where I fall short. And the point is to do better at those things. So I'm not surprised when I fall short somewhere. I just know I need to do better. And I think setting it inside of yourself is, is the goal to say, what is my future version of myself going to be proud of? Yeah, and that's also a journey because one of the ways why I turn my back towards the whole seduction industry and et cetera is that there is a whole marketing niche, ideal client of lost men, and they have them jump and you know scream and et cetera, just a workshop of a day or two days, and they act like that will solve the whole journey of masculinity. And I feel that being abused as such a big marketing audience with something that doesn't really provide a permanent transformation. Yes, yeah, the warrior bullshit. It's those warrior weekends that people do. Yeah, go scream, go beat your chest. It's like, it feels good, but you're creating a vacuum because life doesn't look like that. You're not in the grocery store beating your chest. You're in the grocery store walking with your chest out and your head up, and that's more sustainable. But when you go off on these, yeah, I, I call them the warrior weekends. And I'm sure somebody has a program called the warrior weekend. I guarantee it. <laughs> I don't know who it is, but somebody has it. <laughs> And it, yeah, it's painting your fucking face. It's doing your war chant. Primal screams, et cetera, shaking. It, it doesn't mean that it can't give some insights, but if you don't have a repetition in your lifestyle, in habits, in mindset, it will just be temporary fix. And often the guilt afterwards of having an insight and not having done anything with it will hit you even harder, you know? 100%. I got a cl- question from Lisette who asked, how can you support a man in his masculinity as a woman? Oh, I saw that question yesterday. Lisette Luna. I think respect is the number one thing. I think making sure respect is at the forefront of your communication with men. And the same thing inversely, making sure that love is at the forefront of your communication with women. If you can have that at the corner of your mind, when you, whenever you have a conversation of, am I being respectful or for men? And am, am I being loving? I think that's when you start to really be able to mold your communication style to fit that dynamic. And then well, I, like, go into nuanced conversation. Like there's a whole lot of smaller things, but I think like at a baseline level, making sure he's feeling respected, even when you're disagreeing with him, I think is the point. Are there any resources, books, mentors, et cetera, tools online that you would uh, guide people to who want to learn about the topics that we talked about? I mean, shit I'm making right now, but I I've literally, I'm the worst person at reading other people's stuff. I don't like it because I always find the fault in it. And I'm like, I'm going to create something better. And I'm doing that right now. 
Ivan, tell me a bit more about your masculinity program to help men become better leaders and more masculine. And also tell my listeners to where they can find you online and find some more Big Papa Bear love. Yeah. So well, most of my content is on my personal Facebook page. It's just at Kyrie Oliver or not at Kyrie Oliver, but just Kyrie Oliver on Facebook. And you'll see my big brown face on it. What else? Oh, Instagram. It's just at Kyrie, K-Y-R-E-E. And that's, those are pretty much the only places I post. And then, yeah, I'm working on my first course right now. It's going to be a monster. It's like, we just built out the first few lessons out of six or the first few modules. I got six modules, six lessons in each module. And yeah, it's going to be a big, it's going to be a big thing. It's going to cover a whole lot in creating a balanced masculine presence. So I, I talked with people about carrying a soft heart, thick skin, and a hard head. Your soft heart is the empathy that we've talked about today. Talked about a whole lot about empathy and how you can relate to other people. Thick skin is your internal filtering system for information. What part of this is useful? What part of this is not useful? And then what do I need to do? Spit out the other end. What's the conclusion? What's the action? And then the hard-headedness is what allows you to stick with that action. Stick-to-itiveness, grit, determination, call it whatever you want. But once you have sent your stuff through that filter and come out with a solution, the grit determination lets you stick to that solution just devoid of any distraction or despite any distraction that may come in. And so I think if we can have all three of these working in synergy with one another, soft heart, thick skin, hard head, I think we're able to step a better foot forward into our lives, into our relationships, into our businesses. I want to thank you for getting on the podcast and raising responsible, integrated, healthy leaders for the future. If there's any message that you could leave humanity with, as a rant or a rant over at the end of this podcast, what would be a message you would love to share? I think more people need to look at themselves in the mirror and like throw your phone away on the other side of the room, turn the TV off and like sit with yourself for a second and self-assess, figure out where you're at, figure out where you want to go. And I don't think we spend any, really any time doing that for the most part, maybe sometimes when you're driving. But people don't spend the time to like really, really dig in and say, who am I right now? And is this who I want to be? And then just making small shifts even. Sometimes it needs a big shift. Sometimes you really need to take ownership over something. But usually like day to day, if we're making small shifts in how we approach life and how we approach other people, I think we're doing pretty well. You hear it here, folks. Rants about humanity. Carrie Oliver. We've been ranting about a lot of topics. Like, put off your phone. Only listen to your phone to listen to this podcast. Really excited for the next guests who have passionate opinions about important topics that don't get enough attention. Happy to have you on my podcast, Kyrie, and keep kicking ass. If you like this podcast, don't forget to subscribe, share, and leave a comment. And if you're a coach or consultant and you want to scale your online business or maximize your productivity, check out the show notes to find out more about Philip and his coaching programs. Rent over.